You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Now, we're looking at that into chapter 3 uh, today, and I don't think there are many more provocative or offensive passages in the New Testament than what we're going to look at now, okay? Uh, it, it's, it's an astonishing um, passage, and these verses, they, they take us to true joy and security. These verses protect true joy uh, and security, and uh, these verses explain so much of Paul's joy and delight in belonging uh, to Jesus and being in partnership uh, with others. Um, though he writes, as we've seen, as a prisoner, uh, his joyous pursuit of Jesus above all else breaks through to reveal the freest of men and the safest of men. And that's his great desire for his readers, that they be free, that they be safe, uh, that they be confident uh, because they rejoice in the right things. Uh, this passage takes us there to protect your joy or to bring it if you do not have it in Christ as yet. Uh, and it's, it's just so surprising. Um, only the gospel can account for a passage like this. It's just astonishing. So let me, let me pray and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the passage. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time now and your word. Please open our minds, open our hearts. Send your spirit uh, so we would be amazed and moved and changed by this incredibly important truth today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul writes chapter 3. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord to write to you again about this. There's no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. So this is Paul's desire, uh, joy and safety for his readers, uh, because what you rejoice in and your security uh, go together. Uh, Now we've seen the theme of joy uh, throughout the Philippians already a bit, it's it's, it's prominent in every chapter. Uh, Here he says, rejoice in the Lord. So rejoice in Jesus, may your joy be grounded in Him, because there are lots of things we can and hope to rejoice in and, and whatever you trust for your joy you will give yourself to you you'll give yourself to that and uh, and so you know, the the addict rejoices in in the next high the fan rejoices in their hero the child rejoices in their favorite toy but the high finishes with such a low and the hero dies and the world falls apart when the toy cannot be located. All right? Where you're hoping for joy is, is very, very telling. And, and, and it, is, it is easily misplaced. Um, some have their joy uh, for the entire weekend tied to how well a bunch of 20-year-olds can get a ball from one side of an oval to another. Okay? And I mean, really, imagine having your joy grounded in that. Really? Is, is, that, is that it? Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul, who made you, who who served you, who shed blood to forgive you, who wishes to bless you and grow you and bring you into an eternity of everlasting joy that can never disappoint nor can never be taken away from you. 
Psalm 16, uh, one of my favourite psalms, verse 11, uh, says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like the, that, that is the God that we have. And, and so the most spectacular and, and thrilling reality in the universe is, is, is not what you might be able to do on your phone. You know, the, the, the most joyous possibility in your day is not finishing work and, and getting a good night's sleep, as, like, as good as that might be. The most joyous thought and reality is that Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue confess His unrivaled worth and He loves you. <laughs> and and, and, and he's, His love is expressed in His desire to see, to see your joy fulfilled and complete. And, and, he's, and He has fought for your joy with, with the deepest commitment of all. Isn't that, isn't that profound? I think joy theft is a major threat and problem in the Christian life and in the Christian church. Joy theft is where something less than the wonder of Christ promises what only Christ can bring and, and we get sucked into it. Have you noticed um, that watching more TV doesn't bring more joy? Um, some of us went back for seconds and maybe some people went back for thirds of breakfast, right? But have you noticed that when you go back for seconds, it's never quite as good as the first were? Isn't that weird? Like, and we still go back for more. Anyway, drinking, like, drinking more alcohol doesn't lead to more joy in your heart. Spending more on yourself doesn't make, doesn't make any more of you. You notice that? So joy theft also turns bitter the sweetness of the gospel. What's happened to joy when the Christian life has become dry and dutiful, full of obligation and constraint? When we lose our joy in Jesus, gracious people become critical people and then free people become frustrated people. Generous people become stingy people. Servant-hearted people express this sense of entitlement. Liberated people become controlling people. Energised people become burnt out people. Somewhere along the way, joy got stolen. Having your joy in the Lord, in Christ and His plans and His achievements actually protects us from all of these and motivates us to work, that, work out our salvation authentically and confidently there was something about Paul that made other people notice how wonderful it was to follow Jesus. He lived to make Jesus look great. Joy in the Lord, even when you have nothing in this world, even when things are not going so well, speaks volumes and it keeps you safe. And it needs to because joy theft was a huge concern for Paul and he wants people to, to be on the lookout to remain safe. Now, how were these Philippians potentially unsafe? Well, they're being persecuted, uh, their leader is imprisoned, and in the next couple of generations, widespread slaughter of Christians will occur. That's pretty unsafe, I suppose, but that's not the threat he's worried about. That's not what he's concerned about. That's not what they're to be on the lookout for. They are to look out for thieves. All right, they can look out for thieves. Look at verse 2. He says, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, were you, were you expecting that? 
What do you make of that verse? This just comes out of nowhere. Rejoice and then watch out for dogs. Right? See, I'd, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be sort of writing, look out for persecutors, look out for the secret police, look out for opposition to the faith because that's scary and that's unsafe. They will rob you of your joy by, by making your life hell. But no, Paul is facing that threat every day. And he is as joyful as ever. So there's something else even more threatening than physical opposition. Who are these dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh? Not exactly a flattering description, is it? Dogs was a term used to describe that which was unclean. You know, wild and stray dogs on the outside of the community would come in and scavenge and spread death and impurity. You know, this idea of the, the, the unclean coming in. Evildoers or workers of evil... Those who are a menace, who, who un, undo the good fabric of healthy life and, and community, who do Satan's bidding to torment the faithful. Mutilators of the flesh? These were all terms, actually, that Jews used in reference to Gentiles. Unclean, on the outside, who practice evil, who infect the purity of what is holy who in their idolatry cut themselves, mutilate themselves in the worship of their false gods. So they're all sort of terms a Jew would use of Gentiles, but this Philippian church was actually made up mostly of Gentiles, like, like, like Lydia, like the jailer, you remember. So what does Paul mean here? Well, Paul is taking terminology a Jew would have used in reference to criticise a Gentile, and he turns it around to actually speak of those who are forcing Jewish practices upon new Christian converts, symbolized in the practice of circumcision. And he says, we, the Philippian church with whom he partners, are actually the ones who are legitimate in God's eyes. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus. So, Paul turns the terminology around to say the Jewish, these sort of Jewish agitators spreading false teaching about the gospel and confusing and tainting the grounds of your security and your confidence before God in Christ are workers of evil to look out for. Now, it's, a, it's a massive thing to say, but it's really important to say because pressure was being applied to the early church by these teachers who were saying they were not really part of God's people. You're not really in the partnership, right? Um, you know, when you're excluded from something, you, 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 you know, you don't have the right paperwork, uh, you, you know, you didn't pay the fees, um, you, you didn't get enough references, like you showed up wearing the wrong clothes or something. Um, the, the biggest problem Paul faced throughout his ministry was not the risk to his life by Roman persecutors, it was the risk to the faith posed by theological persecutors, by far. But the risk to your life is one thing. The risk to your soul is, is, a, is a greater thing. So it was a major issue in the early church because Paul would preach the gospel of grace in Christ alone. He would see Jews and Gentiles come to love and trust Jesus and start to church together as followers of Jesus. They partner together. But then false teachers would, would follow and say, you'll only really be secure, you'll only really be partners with God if you get circumcised, if you follow Jewish traditional practices. You need those for your spiritual credibility and 
security. And, and it, they followed him wherever Paul went. This was his greatest nightmare. How demoralizing that must have been for the Gentile and how confusing for the Jew who's come to trust in Jesus and, and not those practices. Now, I used to be in, a, in a, a church where unless you were filled by the Spirit, unless you were baptized in the Spirit and had a spiritual experience to back it up, you couldn't be in the band. And everyone wanted to be in the band, you see? So what, what, what happens? Some people get hurt and ticked off. Others go and seek for that experience so they have the necessary credentials. And then the band sounds terrible. No, but, but you see, but here's, here's you see, what, it also, what it also does. It takes your eyes and confidence off Christ. And where, where, does it, where is it placed inevitably? Look, it's, it's placed here, isn't it? You, in yourself. And it, and it actually steals your joy and it ruins that of others as well. It's so insidiously dangerous. And for Paul, this is diabolical. It unwinds the entire gospel. It, it rattles people's confidence in, in Christ by, by placing confidence in, in the flesh. And by in the flesh, he means your efforts and achievements. That's, that's, that's what he means. And look, Christendom has been full of a whole host of religious rites and duties and sacrifices and mantras where an act of the flesh has itself become the grounds for self-confidence and security before God. That by achieving something by, or by overcoming some vice or doing some great deed, you will secure or further guarantee right relationship and legitimacy before God. Paul says to rejoice in Christ is to not rejoice in the flesh. Is not to rejoice in your spiritual achievements at all. And look out for those who would say otherwise. Don't go there. Don't go near that stuff. Evil, unclean, they wish to mutilate you. Like it's very strong. Right? Now, how can Paul say this? Well, he can say it because he knows. He knows. Because that's exactly who he was, you see. Indeed, that's exactly what he'd given his life over to. If ever there was a poster boy for confidence in one's achievements before God, it was Paul. He is that position's best argument. Right? And so he argues for it. Verse 4, he says, Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I love this. That is, if you want to argue that joy and success and scaling the spiritual heights of pleasing God can be attained through what we are able to do or who we are able to be for God, Paul says, I can argue more strongly. I know. And if you've got a long list of achievements in what you've been able to do for God, I've got more. Mine is longer. Mine's more convincing. Mine's better, he's saying. It's great. Here he goes, verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that's in the law, blameless. Blameless. You see, as he goes through the list, it's just cancelling out all these other people, you see. But he is still there. Blameless. Now let that sink in, he's saying. Let it sink in. I mean, he was someone who had ticked all the boxes. 
Here is the true blue Jew who reached the pinnacle of religious devotion, orthodoxy, passion. His pedigree is unmistakable. His devotion to his faith, undeniable. His pursuit of, of an expression of both are just unmatched. So Paul, you know, didn't miss a festival. Didn't skip any prayers. Even when no one's watching, he could recite. Like, get this, Paul could recite off by heart every psalm, the entire Torah. He knew exactly how to recall the words of any of the prophets in Greek and Hebrew and then explain it in Aramaic. Okay? Like it's, it's that kind of scope. And here's the thing, he didn't indulge in worldliness. He gave generously. He advanced and was fast-tracked to the most respected of positions. He loved God so much. He was so zealous to do what was right before God, he was prepared to take down those heretical Christians who were following some maniac Messiah. Paul was the darling of the righteous Jewish theological establishment and his life and integrity was indisputable. And he gave his life to urge others in the same which meant his life was an ordered regime of devotion and prayers and study and good works and sacrifices and without complaint, without missing anything of what was required, he gave himself to express it. 24-7, his life was orientated in this devotion and he had practiced it and pursued it relentlessly for years. So it's very easy for us to sort of demonize Paul for his fanaticism, but he was a good guy. He didn't so much as take a second look at a woman. He wasn't feathering his own spiritual nest to be honoured all the more by men. He wasn't skimming money off the side in any sort of corruption. He was not tainted by any of that. No, there's no dirt file on Paul. Pure and faithful and devoted and seemingly unstoppable. But of course it all changed, didn't it? <laughs> Somewhere in the midst of his spiritual pursuits and, a, and achievement, on, on, that, on that trip to Damascus, he meets the risen Jesus. And it's, it's almost instantaneously, it's, it's, it black becomes white. He's a, he's a changed man. And he's safe. He's safe. And for the first time in his life, he has real joy, which, which drives him. And drives him to say things like, verse 7, can you get your head around verse 7 after what has just been said? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Right? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You think, hang on, what? Whatever gain? Surely you had every gain. You were superhero Pharisee. You were Mr. Gets It Right every time. You had given your life to this. You'd aced every exam. You were top of the class. You were the pinnacle of spiritual greatness in the greatest religion known to humanity. Because that's what Judaism was. The greatest religion known to humanity. And all of that a loss? Your, your, your spiritual achievements were a loss to you? You, you traded that all in? Yeah, Paul actually says, well, more, more than that, verse 8, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Your spiritual achievements you see as, as loss, you, you see as rubbish, you see as, as dung. 
excrement. Paul sees all that he has achieved spiritually is basically this massive pile of human waste. That's what he's saying. And you don't keep human waste. You don't store it up for a rainy day and you don't show people how proud you are of human waste. You get rid of it. That's what you do. Paul meets Jesus Christ and he finds something so much better What Christ brings, what Christ has achieved, makes his achievements, his fleshly, spiritual attainments, look like a pile of human waste, and he loses it. He flushes it for Jesus. Paul meets Jesus and everything changes, doesn't it? The all-surpassing achievements of Christ, the all-surpassing wonder of Christ. And and what's essentially changed, what's changed is where Paul's joy and confidence now lies, do you see? Verse 8, I count my fleshly achievements as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Uh, Paul had been living to establish his own righteousness through his devotion to the law, which meant his confidence, his joy, his state of being was only as strong as he was. His love was in God, yes, but his grounding was in self-performance through the law. And it's, it's, a, it's a tyranny because you've got to keep performing. And it's, and it's tenuous because when you perform well, you feel confidence, which moves to pride and looking down upon others. And when you don't perform, you feel loathsome and you look down upon yourself, envious of others. You, you, some of you will know that exact pattern, won't you? It's exactly what it's like. That cycle. And you're constantly in that, that cycle of insecurity. When others do something well, you're jealous. When you do something well, you're preachy. When you do something well and it's not acknowledged, you're offended. Where's the joy in all that? Like where, where, where's the safety? It's not there. Well, in that system, it's, it's performance-bound, and so you, you relate to others out of insecurity, and you relate to God out of insecurity as well. You, you're either seeking His forgiveness and, or, or blessing through some activity, or hoping He'll reward you and owe you for your efforts and sacrifice in another activity, or you give up because there's no joy if, if you never perform, and there's only fleeting joy if you do. Like, is that it? Is that, is that what Jesus came to bring you now Paul confesses he performed pretty well compared to others he performed amazingly well you can't you can't beat his performance can you but his performance was the well from which he drew his confidence his performance was the well from which he drew his confidence and if you want to go down that track says Paul I bet I've gone further than you ever have or ever will and compared to Jesus it's rubbish. It's rubbish. It's wrong. You are drawing stuff out of your own sewer. And when Paul says he counted as lost, he's not saying how desperately unhappy he is that he had to stop being a Pharisee. He's not saying how he wishes he kept his Hebrew exam results. He's not saying, wow, I had to give up so much to become a Christian. I really lost out, but I suppose Jesus might be worth it. Like, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that that other stuff was dangerous. 
The me pursuing righteousness through confidence in my abilities was the worst thing for me. Like, I'm, I've, I'm done with that. That pursuit is like swimming in the sewer. Like, that is a good thing to give up, right? Hey, Paul, where are you headed to so early in the morning? Oh, I'm just off to do a few hundred laps in the sewer. Wow, Paul, you're my hero. Awesome. Hey, what's that drink you've got there, Paul? Yeah, I just collected this stuff from the toilet. Wow, Paul, where can I get me some of that spiritual protein shake as well? You know, like, it is poison. (laughs) John Owen uh, from the 17th century reflected a lot on this kind of thing. And he said, and he's... um, he hasn't updated his uh, Facebook page. But anyway, um, he said, um, this is in relation to Catholicism at the time. He, said, he says, the whole bundle of the popish religion is made up of designs and contrivances to pacify conscience without Christ. Wow. Read some John Owen, good stuff. And what he means is that we try and abstain from things and commit to things through various practices and habits as if they themselves will bring merit and transformation to us. But it completely misses the problem. All the devotion to a religious practice can't change the heart, which is seeking to self-justify. And so much of religion does this. And indeed, it doesn't matter whether you're a religious person or a secularist, your heart seeks to justify and validate who you are through your achievements through the way you live, through what you do or what you don't believe, through what you do or don't support or put your name to. And when you're doing that well, and when others think well of you, your confidence is likely to go up. When not, and when you fail it, it will necessarily go down, and joy will go down with it as well. So Paul rejoices that he does not have a right standing before God based on his performance, He is not righteous based on anything of him. He's been freed from that need and that pursuit. He's got something better, something that's complete and something that's freeing. He's got the righteousness of Christ. And that is secured not through being good enough, not through being right enough, not through being devoted enough, not through being spiritual enough, and certainly not through any act to pacify the conscience, it is secured completely and eternally by not trusting self and instead trusting Christ. We read yesterday from um, Philippians 2 how Jesus humbly obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, and that God exalts him above all else. He is Lord, he is Saviour, He alone was righteous and he trades your unrighteousness for his righteousness. He trades your evil works for his perfect work. Um, He imputes your damnable good works done in self-righteousness upon himself and dies for it. And he imputes his perfect, eternal, pure righteousness upon you who trust him. The work of forgiveness he went through on your behalf is sealed upon those who trust him. The status of forgiven, justified, righteous forever becomes yours. And you didn't go through any ritual to gain it. No cutting, no branding, no payment, no exam. 
And, 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 and you cannot be in a, uh, more confident or secure. Because it's not resting on you. It's resting already on him. It's not dependent on self-righteousness because that's swimming in the sewer, remember. And you'll never get clean swimming there. How dependable is Christ? What joy you see. But someone will say, if Christ just gives me his righteousness, why all this Christian activity? All right? Why all this working out your salvation with fear and trembling? If Christ just gives me everything, if I stand justified and forgiven simply by depending on him and not me, where's the drive to actually grow? Where's the drive to actually pursue? Well, here's the thing. As we saw this last session, if he died for me, I will live for him. Thankfulness plays a huge role in the Christian life, but if that living for him is constantly assessed by God as to how faithful I am or how dutiful I am, I'm still incredibly insecure, aren't I? But if the weight of having to please God to be righteous is taken from me, it means I'm genuinely free to please him. Indeed, precisely because I don't have to be a good Christian in order to prove my worth or earn my keep in the Christian partnership, precisely because I don't have to, means I'm freed up to. So today, my confidence did not rest in how good this sermon was going to be. This talk was never going to be my justification before you or before God, praise the Lord, right? Which means, guess what? I can give myself fully to it, joyfully, diligently, delightfully, freely. And today your righteousness before God is not hanging on how productive you might be for God. You are free from carrying that burden if you are a Christian, which means, guess what? It means you are freed up to actually be productive. <laughs> you know the joy that it is to do something that you don't need to do? Right? What was it at university? All the other subjects that I didn't have to do assessment for just seemed more interesting. All right, it's just, But the joy of doing something, you don't need to do it. And, and because you don't need to do it, you actually want to do it. So you actually can do it with more freedom and joy. I love that. The very fact that you are not justified by good works, but are secure in the perfection of his good works for you, means you are freed up to do them. The very fact that my righteousness is not bound up with how much of the Bible I might read or how much I might bless or serve others means I can freely and joyfully pursue both. Like I'm not looking for a payment or a benefit because I already have it all in Christ and I can delight in belonging to Jesus. Christ's finished work on my behalf is actually the engine room for my joyous work for him. Brilliant. Take, for example, William Wilberforce, um, who also has not fixed his Facebook page recently either. But he was, this, this guy was one of the most productive, devoted people in all of uh, history. Um, and we can take away that quote. That's Owen's quote, but anyway. Um, I don't have a quote from Wilberforce, but he, he was one of, the most, one of the most productive people in history. But do you know what his key motivation in life was? Now, people say, well, it was because he hated the slave trade. That's what kept him going. He was passionate about ending slavery in the British Empire. 
But it wasn't that he hated the slave trade and wanted Britain to be rid of it. It was because, and, and you could read him on this, it's because he believed in justification by faith alone. That was his drive. That was his motivation. When he realised he didn't need to earn God's favour to enjoy him, he didn't need to prove his worth as a productive human being to feel good about himself or be acceptable before God. When, he, when that was lifted from his shoulders through the perfect work of Christ on his behalf, he was free to serve in joy. He was free to give his life away in joy. And this explains so much of Paul's world, is it not? It explains so much of Christians the world over who, because their confidence is grounded in Christ, they rejoice in the Lord. And they live out a salvation based in Christ and filled with joy. But if you get swept up in false teaching that undermines that confidence in Jesus, you will find that a burglary has happened in your heart. You've been robbed. They took your joy in Jesus. So what's the best way to keep on the lookout for such theft? What's the best way to guard our hearts and protect our joy? Well, it's to, it's to pursue it in Jesus first. It's to keep pursuing it first in Jesus. Rather than imagining and pursuing all the wonderful things you might do for you, start imagining all the wonderful things he will do for you and with you. I, I, I love this thought. God is far more committed to your joy than you are. He's far more committed. Do you realize that? We're committed to our happiness for a lifetime and especially for the next 30 minutes, all right? Jesus is committed forever, forever. We're committed to our joy and fulfillment, but we hit the mark, you notice, we hit the mark with such inaccuracy. He knows you inside and out and only plans good things in any and every situation you face, whether trial or success. He is the one who brings you the impossible status of righteousness and blessed and welcomed forever with God in all his glory. Why? That you might know and delight in him. You become a Christian, you get something better than all of God's blessings. What's, what's, what's the one thing that's better than all of God's blessings? You get God. That's what you get. You, you, you get to know and love Christ. Heaven's greatest delight is yours to enjoy. Indeed, that's where the passage today ends. Christ has made you his and made you righteous, made you righteous through his death and resurrection. Paul says that I might know him. This is the greatest, most joyful pursuit, to know him, to, to know the power of his resurrection, to share in what his sufferings have achieved, to become like this Jesus. For that to happen in your life, he, he, he's, he's purchased you for him. Now, if you want your joy protected, make sure it's the Lord you rejoice in before anything else. Because nothing else can match what Jesus has done and will do. If you want your joy protected, pursue Jesus 
pursue Jesus together in partnership. Getting to know Jesus better is the most joyous and fulfilling pursuit imaginable. It's not just what he's done and will do, it's who he is. Um, I, I didn't marry my wife, I didn't marry Kelly for her money. All right? She had more than me, but I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't marry her for her money. I married her because I knew her and what I knew was enough for me to know I want to keep getting to know her for as long as we have in this earthly life. Okay? Imagine if I said to her, oh yeah, well, I, look, I just married you to get stuff out of you. And I married you for you. I want to know you. And that's a joyous thought, isn't it? Even for Kelly, <laughs> I hope. Sorry. <laughs> what did you become a Christian for? What did you become a Christian for? It, it wasn't just to gain Christ's benefits, was it? Though they are astonishing and amazing and desperately needed and we should be thankful for them. Wasn't it to gain Christ? To actually relate to the most special being in the universe who loves you? Who loves bringing you joy? Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe. It's a safeguard to you. Rejoice in the Lord, not the things of the flesh. Rejoice in the Lord and so pursue Jesus who so pursued you. Partners in Christ. Own, celebrate, protect Pursue this joy together. You need each other's help in this. Let's pray. Father, forgive us our shallow suits of joy. And in shame, we admit too often, we've come to Jesus last for fulfillment and satisfaction when all we ever needed was in him all along. We rejoice in your benefits to us this day, Lord, as this passage has shown us. But more, we want to rejoice in him, to know him, to be a partnership in Christ who knows and loves and adores Christ. Take us, please, Lord, to that confident place, that safe place, that joyous place that you have for us and fill us with joy. And thanks, as together we encourage one another to keep pressing on and pursuing all that you have for us. And we pray in the joyous name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing together.